0: I wonder if someone comes to mind for you when I say, whatever it takes. Is there someone that you can think of that lives with a whatever-it-takes attitude? Maybe it's a parent that just operated that way, or it was a coach or a teacher or a friend or a boss. You had someone that just lived with a whatever-it-takes attitude. Many of you have heard me talk over the years about the love-hate relationship that I have with the subject of math. And the part that I love is that I love to hate it, all right? Kids, stay in school. It matters, but I hate math. I'm just going to put that out there. And the, the thing about math that tripped me up more than anything was fractions. Anybody else struggle with fractions? Right? Okay, good. Unless it was a cheesecake, I didn't know how to do fractions. But here's the deal. My mother would labor with me for hours and hours and hours over fractions. We would sit at the kitchen table, and she would labor, and I would get frustrated, and I would get angry, and she would make me stick with it. And I would ask questions like, how long do I have to do this? And what would she say? As long as it takes. Well, that's not what I wanted to hear. And I'd be like, Mom, what all do I have to do? She'd say, you got to do whatever it takes to get it. And she would not relent. Now listen, while I was a fourth and a fifth grader and didn't want to hear that, it was building something in me, right? It was laying a foundation for something and establishing for me the reality that there is no shortcut to achieving what is most important in our lives. And what we're going to look at this morning, church, is that God has called us to a mission, And there's no shortcut to accomplishing that mission. And for the church to see that mission realized and to see the priorities that God has given us realized, we have to adopt a whatever it takes attitude. And so we're going to grab our Bibles and go to Mark chapter two this morning, Mark chapter two, and we're going to look at a very familiar story of four friends who had a whatever it takes mindset when it came to getting their friend to Jesus. Mark chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1 and to kind of catch you up on where we are in the narrative. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus has, has already begun his ministry and he's already done things like been tempted in the desert by Satan, and and he's called his first disciples. He's even begun to do some miracles. So we've seen him uh, uh, cleanse a man who had an unclean spirit. We've seen him heal the mother-in-law of Simon Peter. We've seen him uh, cleanse a man who had leprosy, and he's going around and he's healing all sorts of people with different diseases and demons, and so much of this is happening that he's starting to gain uh, fame, if you will. People are starting to hear, you start doing this kind of stuff, people are going to know it. And so he's becoming popular. And so everywhere he goes now, there's crowds that are drawn to him. And those crowds are going to be filled with people who are excited because they've seen him and they're excited to be with him. Those crowds are going to have people who are just curious because they heard about him and they want to know more. Those crowds also have people who are there because they want to trap him. And, and charge him with a crime. I'm talking about the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and, and those that were there for different reasons. And the scene that we're gonna peek in on in Mark chapter two, all of those people are in this scene. They're all in one house. And so let's look at Mark chapter two and we'll start reading in verse one. It says, and when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Now, just as a side note, Jesus didn't necessarily have a home, right? This house that he's in, we believe, is the house of Simon Peter. Um, Jesus lived his life necessarily without a home. If you'll remember, he said, the son of man has no place to lay his head. He's like a fox without a den. And so, um, but Jesus did use the city of Capernaum as a bit of a home base for his ministries. And so that's what it means when it says that he was at home. In verse two, and many were gathered together so that there was no, room, no more room, not even at the door. And what was Jesus doing? He was preaching the word to them. Verse 3, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there and questioning in their hearts, what is this why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God? Now, where did they ask that question? In their what? In their heart. They didn't say it out loud. right? They're, 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 this is, this is a, a thought that they have in their mind. It's something in their heart. And what Jesus is about to prove is that he is God because man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. And so look at what happens next. So they've got this thing going on in their heart. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they they thus question within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? So he's about to answer a question they never even asked out loud. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Now think, that's a very interesting question. What's easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your bed and walk? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Here's why. Because you don't actually have to see proof that someone's sins are forgiven. But if I say, rise, take up your bed and walk, there's going to have to be some physical proof that there's authority in my words, right? So it's easier for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven because it doesn't require proof that anything actually happened. But look at what Jesus says next. He's about to do the thing that they can see to prove that he has authority to do the thing they can't see. Look at verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins so that you know I can do the thing that you can't see. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything. Like this. Verse 12 is what I want for New Beginnings. What I want for our church is that we would would gather, that we would live our lives saying of Jesus, we have never seen anything like him. I want to stand in awe. Are you with me on that? I want to stand in awe of who he is. I, want to, I don't ever want to get over what he's done for us in forgiving our sins and making us new and restoring us back to God and giving us life. I don't want to get over it, and I want to live every day going, I've never seen anything like Jesus. And that's what they said there in verse 12. And there's something that we find here, something I find critical for the life of every believer that we see in these four friends, and that is they had a whatever-it-takes attitude when it came to bringing their friend to Jesus. Now, we know God has called us to live on mission. We just had a series called Urgent, where we just looked at that mission, where we've looked at the call of God on our lives to share the gospel and the urgency of the mission that we're supposed to live with. And that mission is meant to be, is to declare the gospel and to invite people into relationship with him. We know God has put us on that mission. But in order for us to see that mission realized, in order for us to accomplish what God has called us to do, the people of God have to take on a whatever-it-takes mindset. We have to take on a whatever-it-takes mindset. So how do we do that? What does it look like for us? What would it look like for New Beginnings to take on a whatever-it-takes mindset when it came to winning the lost in Gilmer and in Lawview and in Upshur County and in all these surrounding areas where we want to see God do a work? What would that look like? I think there's two things that's going to require that we see in the lives of these friends that they display for us. This is a two-point sermon. I know that we don't know what to do with that because I'm usually three, but I'm going to give you two today. Uh, here's the first one. We have to have a faith that knows Jesus is enough. A faith that knows Jesus is enough. Look at what they, uh, it was said in Mark chapter 2 verse 5 we just read that. It says that when Jesus saw there what faith. He said to the paralytic, "Son, your sins are forgiven." There was on there was a faith on display here that captured the attention of Jesus. It says he saw it. He saw that the first thing that we need to notice is that a faith that believes Jesus is enough is a faith that can be seen. Are you with me? It's a faith you can see. It is marked with more than words. It doesn't say Jesus heard their faith. It doesn't say he heard them talking about their faith and what they believed. We're good at that. I'm great at that. It says he saw it. He saw their faith with his Eyes, which means what? It means faith isn't measured in what I say I believe about Jesus. Faith is measured in how faithfully and obediently I walk with him. Do you see the difference? There's plenty of people in the church who will talk about what they believe. Faith is measured in what I live. And that's what Jesus saw in these men. What does that mean for us? It means that faith is not about how loud we sing or how loud we shout about Jesus on Sunday. It is about ho- how obediently we live for him on Monday. That's faith. And that's, that's it's, a, it's a faith that knows Jesus is enough and it can be seen. So how do we gain a faith that knows that Jesus is enough? Well, it begins with a faith that knows Jesus. You can't know he's enough if you don't know him. What do I mean? How many of you have ever been asked to serve as a reference for someone? Happens to me all the time, and I love to do it. Listen, if you need a good reference, I'll lie for you tomorrow. I'll tell them all kinds of stuff, right? I'm just kidding. I don't do that. Um, Here's something that happens that's very awkward, and I wonder if this has happened to any of you. There's times I've been asked to serve as a reference for someone that I really don't know that well. Has that ever happened to you? You've been asked to serve as a reference for somebody that you really don't know very well. And so you get the phone call. And it says, uh, yeah, I just want to, you, you were been put down as a character reference for somebody, and I'm trying to rack my brain and remember who that is, and they start asking me questions like, oh, well, tell me what kind of person they are. Man, they're great. They're so great. You're going to love them. they <laughs> You're just going to love them, right? Well, well, how long have you known them? Man, four, five weeks, years, something in there. You know, we've known each other a minute. It's been a while. Um, How well do they work with other people? So good. They do that so good. (laughs) Those are the kind of answers that I'm giving. Why? Because I don't really know them. A good reference, you need to know them personally, right? If you have a friend who is sick, where are you going to send them? You're going to send them to a doctor that you know. And listen, while these friends didn't know everything about Jesus, they didn't know everything about Jesus, what they knew was he can meet the need of their friend. So church, I want you to hear me say this. You don't have to know every answer about Jesus to know Jesus is enough. Are you with me? You don't. some of us get hung up on sharing our faith or on sharing the gospel because we've believed the lie that if I can't answer every religious question, then I can't even start the conversation. And I'm telling you, the single question you have to answer is this. Is Jesus enough? Yes, he is. You've got a story now to share the gospel. It's a faith that believes Jesus is enough. These friends took everything they knew of Jesus, and they didn't know everything, but they took everything that they knew, and it became a faith that overcame every obstacle to to bridge the gap between where their friend was and what their friend truly needed. And I want you to to hear this morning, and, and I want you to know this morning, That for the lost in our lives, those who are apart from Christ, there is a gap between them and what they truly need. There is a gap between your lost family and what they truly need, between your lost friends and co-workers and what they truly need. And God has called us to be a part of bridging the gap. Now, here's the good news. Jesus bridged the gap, amen? Jesus did all that was necessary to to meet their need, their greatest need. And in Matthew chapter 28, we've been given the Great Commission where we've been invited to be a part of bridging that gap. We've been called to go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to know all that Jesus has commanded us, knowing that he is with us. So we get to be a part of that mission. Jesus has done the work. We've been invited to be a part. And some of of displaying for someone a faith that knows Jesus is enough is helping them realize the thing they think that's enough isn't really enough. Because think about when you were lost. Think about before you came to faith in Christ. What were the things you were using to try to fill the void so that you could feel like you were enough and that your life was enough and that you had enough. People think if they get their promotion, that's going to fix it. If they could just make a certain amount, just a little bit more money, that's going to fix these problems. If I, could, if I could just get my marriage right, all this is going to work out. If I could just get my kids back where they need to be. This is going to be great. If I could just get through this sickness that we're dealing with as a family. And they think that that is what they really need. But a faith that knows that Jesus is enough is a faith that's willing to say, Jesus may deal with that, but what you need is forgiveness. What you need is Christ. It's helping them bridge the gap from where they are, To what they need. There has to be a faith that knows Jesus is enough. Here's the second thing we've got to have there's got to be a love that moves us to action. A love that moves us to action. Look at verse 3 and 4 of Mark 2. It says And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now listen, there is a love on display here from these friends for their friend. These guys didn't simply pray about bringing their friend to Jesus. They got up and brought him. They were motivated to action. Why? Because gospel love is not a passive love. Gospel love doesn't just sit back and hope for the best. Gospel love is engaging. It's proactive. These men could have said you know what, it's a big crowd today. Listen, Bob, or whatever the guy's name was on the stretcher, we're going to go back, we'll try again later. They could have said that. They could have said, man, I'm I'm tired, it was a long day at work yesterday. If Bob really wants to meet Jesus, he'll figure out how to do it. They could have said, uh, uh, you know, It's going to be super inconvenient. There's all kind of stuff that I got. And you know what? Bob may not even want us to take him, and I don't want to hurt my friendship with Bob, so I'm just going to leave it alone. They could have made all kinds of excuses and all kinds of reasons why not to do it, but instead, what do we see? We see a love that was moved to action. Their gospel love for him would not permit them to look away and just hope it worked out. There was a love that moved them. They were motivated to be involved and get involved in this person's life. Not only is this love not passive, but listen, this love is also costly and it's risky. (laughs) This is gospel love is risky. It's going to cost you something. What do I mean by that? Well, there are several costs that these friends were paying as they went. There was a physical cost. Now think about it. They had to carry this man. From wherever he, they didn't take an Uber from where they were to where Jesus was. They toted this rascal through town, okay? Who in here has ever had to carry another human being? I know of some of these first responders, you've had to carry, okay, that's awkward, okay? We're all floppity and weird, and it's hard to carry a person, you know what I mean? And if you have to do it for very long, it wears you out. And these friends have carried him across town. How many times did they have to stop and rest? Now think about it, now they've got to the house, they couldn't get in, so what do they do? Now they're going on the roof. Now most of the homes had a uh, stairway that just went right up the side of the home. So now they're awkwardly taking their buddy up these stairs. Who's ever had to move a couch upstairs? Ever had? Boy, that'll make you thankful for the sanctification of Jesus, won't it? Good gosh, you'll get saved seven or eight times moving a couch upstairs. (laughs) Holy cow, I'm telling you. And these guys are, are moving their friend now up the stairs. No, turn him this way. Flip him over. No, get his feet up. And then it's, that's what's going on, right? And they're paying this physical cost. But listen, there was also a, a social risk that they took here. So they're walking this man through town, which means they're walking by homes. They're catching the stares of people who are wondering what they're doing. Those side glances. What are you, what are you guys up to? walking through here carrying someone. But they were willing to risk the momentary social awkwardness to see their friend get a lifetime of happiness. And believer, I I just wonder, are we willing to risk some social awkwardness to see the people that we love receive an eternity of happiness? There was, some, there was some social risk there, right? There was also some financial cost and risk here. How do we know that? They destroyed somebody's home. <laughs> okay, let's, it's easy to blow past that. Oh, uh, what a pretty picture. Most of the paintings of this, there's this really nice, perfect square like they had a saw. It says they tore the roof off, Okay. Officer Barth, that means there's some holy breaking and entering going on right here. You know what I mean? So there was going to be the cost to repair this. There was going to be either them repairing it or them paying somebody to repair it. What's the point? There's a financial cost. There's a physical cost. There's a social risk. And I wonder if we love the lost in our world enough to risk the relationship, to risk the social awkwardness, to pay the physical cost, to be financially inconvenienced in order to see them move from where they are to where they need to be. The heart of our mission is the recognition that to love someone well, we have to bring them to Jesus. Because to know they need Jesus and not speak his name to them and not sh- to know that's what their deepest need is and not to share it is to be completely unloving toward them. You can do good things for people. You can give money. That's good. You can give them your time. That's great. You can help take care of their problems. That's great. But when their their deepest need is Christ, you can't meet that need, but you know how to get them from where they are to the one who can. And there has to be a love that moves us to action. Because the people that we have in our world who do not know Christ, the people who are far from him, Listen, they are suffering with a paralysis as well. Their paralysis is called sin and indifference. Their paralysis is called pride and fear and prejudice. That's the paralysis they're struggling with. And many of them will never come into a church where the gospel is preached, which means what? We got to take the gospel to them. Some of them will never hear the gospel unless the men and women of God whose lives have been transformed by the gospel have a faith that knows Jesus is enough and a love that moves us to action to go and share it. This is more than inviting people to church. This is being willing to say the name of Jesus in the circle where he's planted you. The the mission of God is that we would pick up a corner of somebody's stretcher and bring them to Christ. God has called us to be stretcher bearers. That's what we've been called to do. To, as a bride and a body, to pick up the stretcher of someone who doesn't even know they need Christ and to bring them to Jesus. I want you to notice something that Jesus did. Right here, uh, When they bring this man in, it says they, Jesus saw their faith and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, why point that out? Because before Jesus ever said, you're healed, take up your bed and go. Before he dealt with that, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because while that friend and those friends, that man and his friends thought what he needed was for his body to be healed, Jesus knew what he really needed which was for his sins to be forgiven and his life to be restored to God. Does that mean Jesus didn't care about the paralysis of his body and the issues in his life? No, Jesus healed him. He healed him. I want you to hear me say this. Jesus cares about your marriage. He cares about the struggles in your home. He cares about you getting that promotion, whether you get it or not. He cares about your financial security. He cares that that your family is well He cares about those things, but He cares most about the condition of your heart and the forgiveness of your sins and the restoration of your life to God. Jesus did not come to just put us back on our feet. He came to set us free. He didn't come to just make us better. He came to make us new, to make us alive. Now, Jesus may fix those issues, or he may not. But what he will do is deal with the issue that you need most dealt with in your life. And that is forgiveness of your sin and restoration to the God who made you and loves you. He deals with that.